are listening to the Calvary Church Podcast, where each episode features a life-transforming message that was previously recorded in one of our services. And now, let's join a service that's already in progress. Um, We are going to uh, continue our series tonight that we began last week based on Max Lucado's book, Anxious for Nothing. And I just want to say that if you have never read that book, I highly recommend it. Um, Max Lucado is just unlike anybody else in his ability to break down the Word of God in a way that is um, revelatory, in a way that is enjoyable to read. I would say even if you're not a big reader, you could read Max Lucado. He, he is inspiring. Um, he just makes you feel really good about living for God, the way he explains Scripture. So um, last week, Tom began the series and presented to us the reality of the anxious culture that we live in. And statistics tell us that billions of dollars each year are spent on anti-anxiety medications. And despite our modern conveniences and our unprecedented knowledge, our just amazing access to information 24 hours a day. America is the most anxious nation in the world. Isn't that sad? How ironic that here in the land of opportunity, we have more freedom, we have more options than any other place in this world, and yet we are the ones that are freaked out the most. It's just crazy. And so the point of this series is to focus on the fact that we as children of God have a choice in whether or not we live our lives in a perpetual state of anxiety. Because anxiety is based on things that we believe to be out of control. And Paul offers hope to us that is clear and is assured in Philippians 4, which is our text for this topic. By the way, don't you just love that slide? It just sucks me right in. Like, yes, if I lived there, I would be anxious for nothing, but it's, it's beautiful. Um, and so Paul presents us with a choice. There's a way to live outside of anxiety's grip. And I don't know about you, but I like options. And if there's a way to get out of feeling horrible about life all the time, then I want to know what that is. Because I don't know about you, but I don't want my life to be dominated by my thoughts and my wacky emotions and my misguided perceptions sometimes. I need an option. Paul, give it to us. Here we go. And so we're going to look to the Word of God tonight for the second part of this process that we find in Philippians 4. And um, last week we looked at Philippians 4 verse 4, which says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. So I just want to review a couple of points to kind of remind us of some things we covered last week and to build us up to where we're going tonight. That we need to consider the circumstances by which Paul is writing this verse. Paul is in his 60s, and he is in a prison cell telling us to always have a party in the Lord. 
Think about that. Paul is given about half of his life at this point to furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he is in a Roman cell. He is not in a place like that beautiful slide shows. If he has a window, he's looking out a window, watching the world go on while he is isolated. He's cut off from the church that he loves so much. He's cut off from the team of people, those fellow laborers that we read. He greets them all the time. Tell them that I love them. Tell them I'm praying for them. Tell them I think about them. He's, Paul is attached to God's church, and yet he is so isolated when he's writing these words. And so there he is, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in this horrible prison cell in Rome, the the epicenter of the anti-Christian movement of its day. He's not probably feeling very affirmed. He's probably not feeling very comforted in his older age, all the things he's done for God, and he is in prison. And yet, Paul says, rejoice always. He says it in the present tense. He states it that it should be and it can be done constantly. And just in case we didn't get it the first time, he says it twice. Now think about it. There aren't very many verses in Scripture that essentially say the same phrase twice in the same verse. But it's like Paul saying, no, really? Rejoice in the Lord. Seriously. It's like, do you guys have people in your life that use all caps a lot. This is Paul's version of all caps. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read like an email or text with all caps, I'm like, are you yelling at me right now? Or are we excited? Are we freaked out? What do these caps mean to me? I know it means emphasis, but what are you saying? What are you feeling right now? But anyway, Paul is saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, if you didn't get it the first time, I'll say it again from this horrible prison cell. Rejoice. Think about the goodness of the Lord and put your focus on Him. Worship, praise, thanksgiving. These things are not to be limited to just this room to just God's house because rejoicing in the Lord lifts God up in the way that he deserves. He deserves to be lifted up because of his amazing goodness in our lives no matter what's going on. Rejoicing lifts our eyes up off of our circumstances. Rejoicing removes our focus from what is wrong, what we think is wrong, what we are afraid is about to be wrong. Rejoicing gets our eyes off of all of those things and gets it on him. Rejoicing reminds us of who Jesus is, what he has already done, and what he has promised that he will do. Amen. I think it's fair to say that those things are the opposite of our focus when we are sinking into an anxious state of mind. We are not thinking about the goodness of God. 
when we are spiraling out in, an, in anxiety, when the what-ifs are circling around us and focusing us into some corner, we are not focusing on God in those moments. It's impossible to think about God, who he is, what he has done for us, and stay in that corner of hopelessness and despair. Again, I will say it, rejoice. So I'm going to really freak you out right now. And I'm going to invite you to sit in your seat and raise your hands and just rejoice in who Jesus is with me right now. All right. I know it's a little bit different, but we're going to practice what we're talking about. God, I rejoice in you. And as I think about the things that make me anxious, Lord, the things that I'm anticipating in fear, oh God, I choose now to obey the instruction of your word and to rejoice in who you are. What you've promised that I can have, what you have said that you will always be, God, I find joy in that. I find a reason to be happy. I find a reason to feel all right. Because you've already done so many things. Because you've promised to do so many things, God. Your word is the same in the situation that I face today, God. I rejoice in you. I rejoice in salvation. I rejoice in the fact that I have you in my life. I will not be afraid because you are with me. I rejoice in who you are and what you've promised to me. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. Now, nobody feels anxious in this moment. It's just not possible. I want us to focus on thanking Him. That's the first step. We celebrate God's goodness. And rejoicing in the Lord helps us in that process. And so tonight, the second step we want to consider is Ask God for his help. Now, I want to read a story to you, um, an interesting story from history, and there are some Russian names, and I'm going to destroy them, and I'm sorry. And I'm going to do my very best. But this story, some of you have probably heard it, but I had forgotten about it, and it is fascinating in light of what we're about to talk about. On October the 27th, 1962, Vasily Arkhipov was on board the Soviet submarine B-59, there he is, near Cuba, when the U.S. forces began dropping non-lethal depth charges. Okay? So they're just dropping little bombs in the water. They're not loaded. They're not a threat in any way. And they were doing this to encourage the Soviet submarines to surface. It was just a warning. Okay? But the problem was, the crew of this Russian B-59 had not been receiving the communications. And so when they heard it, they thought that it was going to be the beginning of World War III. They reacted to it emotionally and mentally as if it was a real threat when really the U.S. was just saying, we know you're out there, don't do it, okay? So they're on this submarine. Listen to these circumstances. This is horrible. The air conditioning was out on the submarine. Nowhere. 
We were on Guam the last time we were there. A couple of the hyphens in one of the churches we were speaking at took us. They were in the Navy. We got to go on the base, which was like a really big deal. Uh, We had to leave our phones and everything. It was like high security. We got to go into the submarine. And I'm telling you, you don't want to be in a submarine with no air with a bunch of people. So this is not a good environment. Things are automatically intense because shots are being fired. And they're assuming that the U.S. is, is it's about to go down. And they're hot. There's no AC. But what the U.S. did not know was in that B-59 was a nuclear torpedo. Okay? This is worst case scenario. So we've got Russians who don't know that these are just warning shots. We've got a really hot submarine full of men. Ew. And, sorry, no offense, guys, but come on. This is not a good environment to think clearly is the point I'm trying to make. And so the officers had, this, this makes it even worse, the officers had permission to fire the torpedo without asking Moscow first. So the only prerequisite was all three senior officers had to agree that it was time to fire the torpedo. And the problem was two out of the three were in agreement. But thank God for our friend Vasily here, who said, I don't think what's happening is what you think is happening. I don't feel good about it. And so he did not give his consent, and they didn't fire the torpedo. The guy that wanted to, his name was Savitsky, exclaimed, we're going to blast them now. We will die, but we will sink them all. Talking about us, the U.S. We will not become the shame of the fleet. But thank God, because of Vasily's level-headedness, The torpedo wasn't fired. Can you imagine what might have happened at that time? Some trigger-happy senior officer who was in a really rough environment without all of the right information could have made a seriously disastrous mistake that day. And so in the article that I was reading, Thomas Blanton, the director of the National Security Archive at George Washington University, said this. The lesson from this is that a guy called Vasily Arkhipov saved the world. Thank you, Mr. Vasily. You saved us from World War III through your level-headedness. And this incredible story makes me wonder how many times this has happened throughout our history. Or how many times we wish things would have unfolded this way instead of the way they actually did. But in the context of our lesson tonight, how many disasters in our lives, our jobs, our families have been averted or could have been averted because one person Refuse to buckle under pressure. This illustrates what I believe the kind of composure Paul is describing in our text. We're going to go to Philippians 4 verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Now, if you have a King James You're probably familiar, let your moderation is what the King James says, but that word is actually gentleness. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. 
Now that Greek word in verse 5 that's translated as gentleness is case. And this word describes a temperament that is seasoned and mature. It envisions an attitude that is fitting the occasion, an appropriate response, if you will. It is level-headed, level-headed, tempered. There's a steadiness that the Bible is implying here. It's the opposite of an overreaction, basically. Man, I wish I could be described in these terms. Level-headed, tempered, steady. Thank God for people in our lives like that, that don't absolutely lose it. I told you Sunday that, you know, I obviously struggle in this way. And my dad led the charge in my life against fear and against anxiety. And one of his ways of kind of lightening the mood when I was prone to absolutely freak out was he called me spaz. Or he'd say, oh, come on, spazly, are you seriously worried about that? And so that was his way in certain situations. If I was like, what if, what if, what if? He was like, spaz, I got it, just stop. And it was his way of checking me to say, calm down. I was not, I did not have this gentleness. But Paul says that this gentleness, this level-headedness, this calm no matter what's going on, this demeanor is to be evident or obvious to all. To the people that you're around, that gentleness, that calmness is essentially a witness To those around us, it demonstrates our faith in God. Max Lucado says this wonderful statement in his book. The contagiously calm person is the one who reminds others God is in control. How is that possible for us, given our circumstances, given our temperaments, What about the way we were raised? Maybe we never saw that kind of level-headedness demonstrated. How, How can we do that? Paul explains, because the Lord is near. That's how we can have that gentleness, that even temperedness that says, you know what? It's gonna be okay because I know the Lord is near. You know, this series comes at what can be a very anxious time in our calendar year. The holidays and their incessant demands for more time, more money, more energy, and peace on earth, people. We need it all together in about five weeks. Are you kidding me? And yet this is the season... When we focus our hearts on the fact that Jesus was to be called Emmanuel, God with us. As oneness Pentecostals, we should look at a nativity scene in a completely different way. Because we see that baby as not some part of God. But the creator of the universe humbled himself to the point of becoming a tiny baby and experiencing life as we know it from the very beginning of his time on earth. 
God is with us. And if you are born again, his spirit actually dwells in you. And so how can we not join in the hysteria of others, even though we have the same information they do? Maybe we're living in the same circumstances. How do we begin to change the way our natural impulses have been up to this point of, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Do I have any fellow chicken littles in the house? Just ask me, I'm watching for the sky to fall. Everyone around us can be getting the same news, the same horrible updates on their phone, and yet people are watching us as Christians to see how we respond. And Paul is saying in Philippians 4, 5, that your gentleness, your calm, not because you're ignoring the facts, but because you understand that the Lord is near. The Lord is close by. And so I don't have to freak out that the sky is falling because he is right here. He's promised to never leave us, to never forsake us, but we sure act like he might sometimes. We are guaranteed his presence in our lives no matter what we face. In fact, there will never be a moment in our lives that Jesus is not fully present in that moment. That is our promise, that he is fully available all the time. No matter what is going on, he is there. Psalm 46 verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. And all throughout the Bible, God assures his people of his constant presence. To Abraham, do not be afraid, I am your shield. To Hagar, the angel assured her, do not be afraid, God has heard. To Isaac, do not be afraid, for I am with you. And to Moses, or into Joshua after Moses died, do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. I will be with you wherever you go. God's people have never been left to wonder where he is. We must not give in to the impulse that assumes that God has abandoned us. The idea that God has left us is like mental and emotional quicksand. I want to say that again. The idea that God has left us is mental and emotional quicksand that puts us in spiritual freefall. And we tried to establish that in the last series we did, that every part of you is intertwined by God's design. And so if you're freaking out in your mind, If you're falling apart in your emotions, it's going to affect your spiritual life. Our problems are magnified and intensified when we approach them with a sense of loneliness. If we believe the lie that we have been abandoned by God, our problems will be amplified. This downward cycle of fret is hard to break through in our minds, isn't it? It's like a runaway train. It's like a funnel of a tornado. It just keeps growing in its size. And so then its capacity to destroy gets greater and greater. 
That's what anxiety does to us. Max Lucado gives us some really great advice. Choose to be a person who clutches to the presence of God with both hands. Because Max is applying what Paul says, you have a choice. What you think about, what you believe, what you hold on to in a situation. Psalm 118 verse 6 in the New Living Translation says, The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? I belong to God. Nothing can happen to me without his permission. Nothing can happen to me where he is not fully present in my life. The Lord is near. So we do not have to be anxious about anything. Let us remember that Paul's writing a letter here in Philippians 4. They're, the chapter and verse markings, they were added later. And so I think it's helpful sometimes to go back and realize that these verses that we're talking about are all one thought that Paul is explaining. There was no break. I think sometimes when we read the verses separately, we just assume, and this is another idea, and this is another idea. And that's not always the case. Paul's saying, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. All of these are part of what Paul is preaching in this letter to the church at Philippi. Anxiety is unnecessary. It is unmerited and it is unfounded because Jesus is near. And the next time we are faced with anxiety... Let's not start with what we have. Let's start with who we have. That's what Paul is saying. That's why you can be cool-headed when everybody else is freaking out. Because you understand and you believe or you say you believe that the Lord is always present. That he is that constant source of help in the time of trouble. And so as we bring this to a conclusion tonight, uh, we must commit to prayer instead of despair. Prayer is a response and despair is a reaction. There's a big difference I have found in reading books on parenting because I need all the help that I can get. And a lot of Experts talk about this in the context of parenting a child or a teenager. That you need to respond to your child and not react to your child. A response is calculated. It's based on being intentional. What you're trying to accomplish based on what you believe is true. And a reaction is impulsive. It's what feels good to us in the moment. And that's what anxiety is. It's just our natural inclination. And so all systems go, we're in free fall. Because it feels right. Up until this point in Philippians 4, Paul has been assuring us of God's character. The Lord is near. The Lord is here. Remember his goodness. And now, as we continue on into verse 6, 
we go into an admonition to not be anxious, and it is followed by this instruction. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul gives us the plan against anxiety, and it is prayer. God loves it when we pray. He wants to hear from us. He wants us to tell him our needs and our heart's desire in our words. Because prayer acknowledges that he is near and that he is in control. It expresses faith in him and serves as a reminder to us that we believe that he is God. He can do anything. He is the one that has the plan. I don't remember too many sermons I heard as a child, but I remember one time Brother Walker was preaching on Kemper Road, and he made this statement. He said, actually asked a question, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? That's quite a revelation because sometimes we pray and cry out to God as if he doesn't know what's going on. And prayer reminds us of that fact. We're surprised, but he isn't. We're all shook up, but he isn't. We don't know what to do, but he does. He knows what and where and who and why and how long. He has all those answers. And so prayer is a position of humility. It acknowledges that we are not in control. And that is the the unction we have when we're anxious is we want to be in control. We want to figure it out. We want to know how is this going to end? What's going to happen to me? And prayer humbles us to say, I cannot control that. But I can talk to the one who does know all those things. The one who is in control of all of these details that I am so worried about. It's amazing to consider why we don't make prayer our first response. Or even our first reaction. Prayer brings peace to our lives. And isn't that what we're so desperate to have? One of the many things that I truly learned and embraced from reading The Circle Maker by Mark Batterson was the need to be specific in my request to God. That's one of the main things I walked away from that book with. I had never heard anybody really explain that and expound on that the way that he did. And he makes reference to the question that Jesus asked the blind man in Luke 18. When the blind man approaches Jesus and Jesus says... What do you want me to do for you? Seems a little silly. Seems a little cruel. Really, Jesus, you don't know that he wants you to heal him? But Jesus was giving him the opportunity to articulate what it was that he wanted. Jesus wanted to hear it from him. And he wants the same from us. We can't just go through life assuming, well, since God knows, then he should know what it is that I need. No. God has always made it our opportunity, our responsibility to talk to him, 
to pray in ways that are specific. And I want to give you these three reasons that Max Lucado offers why he believes the idea of being specific in prayer matters. I think these are just awesome. Number one, a specific prayer is a serious prayer. You could make a request, but when you nail down details and specifics, then people know you're really serious. You know, can I come by the house? Oh, sure, whatever. Can I come by your house tomorrow at noon? Oh, whoa, okay, we're serious about this. This is happening. Specifics are important. They carry weight. Number two, specific prayer is an opportunity for us to see God at work. Batterson also says in his book, Circle Maker, it is a way for us to keep track of answered prayers so that we can give the glory to God for answering us the way that we prayed. There's an amazing illustration of this in Scripture when Isaac's servant has this unbelievable assignment to find a wife. And he's like, what in the world? Like, where do we even start here? And so he prays this very specific prayer. What she's supposed to say and not say. And God delivers exactly as he has prayed. Specific prayers, when they're answered, man, it stirs our faith. Man, it helps us to believe the next time it's time to pray. And number three, specific prayer creates a lighter load. Many of our anxieties are threatening to us because they're ill-defined and they are vague. Have you ever asked your kid, what are you afraid of? And they're like, I don't know. I think that God feels that way sometimes. Well, why are you upset about just don't know? I can't even tell you. I'm just afraid of everything. I'm chicken little. And so an example of a specific prayer would be, instead of saying, God, just help me today, cover my day, why don't we be specific to say, God, I am really worried about this parent-teacher conference (laughs) and what the teacher might say to me or how I might feel when we discuss certain things my kid is doing or not doing. God, will you help me in that moment to honor you with what I say, what I don't say. Give me a spirit of wisdom in that moment. Now that's a specific prayer. And so when that time comes and you go to the parent-teacher conference, there is a sense of peace in knowing I already gave this to the Lord. I already asked him, as specific as I knew how to at the time, to cover this and to help me. 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care on him, for careth for you, and I'm so upset. I meant to bring balls, and I was going to throw them at you tonight. And I forgot. Not to hurt you. But the idea of casting means letting go. And Peter's saying, cast your cares. Chuck them at Jesus. That's what he wants. He can handle it. He's ready. Put him in the game. Let him be a part of the day. To say, God, I'm releasing this to you. Not because I'm indifferent. Not because I'm apathetic and I don't care. Because I care so much that it overwhelms me. And I realize that I have no control in this situation. And so, God, I'm going to give you that. And I'm not going to take it back. 
I'm going to release it to you. Philippians 4 verse 6, I want to read it to you if you'll stand with me. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Man, that's so simple. Have you ever realized that when you come to scripture and God's word starts speaking to you, there is a powerful simplicity about what God asks of us. Our flesh complicates things. Our enemy makes things seem more difficult than they really are. That's his game. He's been playing it since the Garden of Eden. It was very simple. Eve, Adam, one rule. This tree, nay, nay. Everything else, have a ball. It's yours. I made it for you. And the servant comes to Eve and says, did God really say that? Yeah, he did. It's pretty easy. It's pretty simple. Well, then God must not really care about you. He makes us question his goodness. What started as a simple directive now is this web of mess that we are still living with the consequences of. And so prayer affords us the opportunity to keep things real simple in our lives. To say, God, I am not equipped. You are in control. Let the calm in me be a witness to everyone around me that you are near and that I believe that. Because I don't have to be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let our requests be made known to God. We must learn to respond to life in prayer and not to react in anxiety. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I just can't let this series go by without quoting him. Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strength. If we could realize how cunning the enemy is in his suggestions to us, in the questions that we allow ourselves to think too long on, if we could just keep it simple enough to say, nope, that doubt, that fear, that is not God talking to me. Sometimes it's not even the enemy. We make his job so easy. He doesn't even have to say anything sometimes. And we are crumbling inside. We are in absolute free fall. Because we got a voicemail. And we don't know what it's about. And we go, worst case scenario, I'm a child of God. And I assume the worst possible can happen to me. And I'm a child of God. What a horrible assumption. The implication is that God isn't in control or that he's horrible. And neither one are true. I don't think we believe either one. And so I want us to pray in a very specific way in closing today. Whatever it is that is causing you anxiety in your life right now, whatever it is that you feel like is out of control or out of your control, 
Would you just, number one, acknowledge God's goodness, and then I want you to pray in a specific way about it, and I promise you that you will feel better about it. That load will lighten as you tell God what is in your heart. What do you need me to do for you? That's what Jesus asked a blind man. And the blind man told him, I want my sight. And Jesus gave it to him. So let's try to do this together. God, first we acknowledge your goodness in our lives. We've already rejoiced in you. And now we choose to think about the times in our lives where you have answered our prayers. You have intervened. You have changed circumstances. You've given us favor. You have stopped things from happening in your mercy. And so, God, I remember that today. I thank you for it. I celebrate your promises because they're still real. They're still true. You are Emmanuel. You are near. And so I can be calm I can be level-headed. I can be even-tempered. Even when everything around me is going crazy, when people around me are devastated and upset, Lord, I, even though I'm impacted by those emotions in my humanity, I don't have to fall apart. I don't have to crumble under the pressure because you are near to me. And so, God, I ask that you would help us to pray more specifically about the things that we're facing in our lives. Lord, that we wouldn't just give you a simple statement, a simple request, but, Lord, that we would just open up to you in a way we haven't for a long time. Or maybe we haven't ever in our relationship with you spoken to you in specific terms. Because we want to give you glory. We want our faith to grow in you. And we can do that when we approach you with specific needs. That we can cast these things to you. And that you can handle them. You want them from us. You want to help us. Because it is your will that we be free from fear, from worry, from anxiety. You love us that much. You want us to know that you've got it all covered that you're the one that's in control. Remind us throughout the week. Remind us to pray to you in specific ways so that we can see you work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, Thanks for listening.